This is London Calling. Here is the last news bulletin for today. The time through which we are now passing is of exceptional character. All right, welcome everybody to Full Reptile Radio. I am honoured to be joined by uh, the referee superstar Mark Goddard today. Um, Our careers have been linked all the way through because how many fights of mine you refereed what 12 14 i'd say 14 and counting 14, 14 or 15 14 and counting i like that That's we avoided each other in the ufc for a long time yeah we did we did but then i remember you walking into my dressing room for the Mar- uh, for the marcus davis fight and there was a relief washed over me because i realized when i woke up on that day that i dug a massive hole for myself and if i lost that fight i was gonna fall in and never be able to climb out i could see it in your face yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i remember who you were i'm trying to remember who was cornering you oh uh yeah i, had, I think jimmy wallard there owen Comrie. no obviously i know jimmy and owen yeah. like Nathan the back Levitton, of my hand no 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 you had a guy from the u.s oh really i don't know who wh- where were you out of at that point what gym were you? You, um, you were in Vegas at the time. Uh, no, I was in California then. I was tra- I was training at Legends. Legends, right? Yeah. Well, that's bugging me. And I'm gonna have to go back and watch you, that fight now. You definitely had somebody with you, and as I came in, and then he turned. I remember distinctly all the little things I remember, and you was like your face, and then he turned to you and he said, oh, "That's who you're talking about." You went, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like an excited <laughs> kid. Yeah, yeah. No, he said to you, oh, right. oh, this is who you were talking, the ref you're talking about. Right. And he was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't remember who it was. Mm. Damn, it will come to you. Yeah, it will. I'm going to have to go back. And yeah, Sadala. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that yeah, fight. Yeah, what yeah. happened to him? Amir Sadala? Yeah. Oh, he's, I don't know. I sparred with him about six weeks after the fight. I was over in Vegas. Nice um, kid, huh? Yeah, nice guy. Nice guy. Good kickboxer. Tough. He armbarred CB Dalloway in the finals, didn't he? The ultimate fighter. He, he was he was good. I just I just think I was a beat faster and a lot more aggressive than him. I think that was that. Was you didn't want to lose in Nottingham, mate. I didn't. No, that first round was rough. I I, I go, went back to my corner after that first round and I sat on my stool and I said to my team, "I'm, I'm sorry. I just had to get that round out of the way because I I didn't want to repeat the Condit mistake, which was like eight years ago the other day. Can you believe that? I didn't want to repeat that mistake because there was a there was a pressure going into the condit fight but there was also an ego that I'd carried into that fight which I'd not I'd not carried in before I have a, a lasting memory of that fight too oh, okay. the condit fight mm-hmm. obviously I didn't cuz that was the bispin huh yes and obviously I'd done the the main event which was bispin and akiyama you yeah. were the co-main uh-huh. and I remember distinctly um Robert Downey Jr he was sat cage side that is a clear with, memory of mine yeah with Jude Law Yep, because they were Ritchie. filming, uh, and Guy Ritchie, because they were filming Dr. Frankenstein or, uh, uh, sorry, Sherlock, Sherlock Holmes. Uh-huh. Yeah, sorry, they were filming Sherlock Holmes. And of course, when you both threw that, you both threw the left hook, yep. Condit landed on you, yep. and he jumped out. He yep. was like the only one on yep. that block <laughs> that jumped out of his chair. Obviously, it was a USA thing. Uh-huh. He jumped out of his chair, jumping up and down. Yeah, And I remember there was this like, immediate, there was like, to his left and right, there was like, 200 eyes just looking at him because <laughs> he was the only one that yeah. jumped. He obviously, he was supporting his boy, supporting his man. But yeah, I remember that. It looked to me like he'd had a bit of a bet with Guy Ritchie and Jude Law. Yeah. And they'd taken the Brit and he'd taken the Brit American. versus USA. Yeah, yeah, blah, yeah. yeah. he it's was so being patriotic. Yeah, 100%. I, I forgive him. I actually said on, on the podcast that, that went out last week that uh, I'm friends with Jeremy Piven. And I'm like, we could train you up. You could fight Robert Downey Jr., you know. 
quite fancy getting him ready for a smoker with Robert Danny Jr. <laughs> Imagine that. Get that televised. Put that on UFC Fight Pass. Um, so where do you want to start? What do you want to talk about first? Let's talk about your beginnings because you were a fighter first. You're a, 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 a you're a, a strong black belt. Don't don't shrug it off. You are. Let's be honest. Yeah, I was. What was your fight career like? Uh, a, a bit mixed up. You know, it's weird because there's only one time that I spoke about it publicly and in depth, and that was on another podcast that I'd done with uh, uh, Daniel Strauss. Right. The, the British Daniel Strauss. Yep, the Raspberry Ape. The Raspberry Ape. I went down to train with Dan, and he's a cool guy, Dan mm. is. Um, and I went down to train, he said, come do the podcast. And we, we sat down and we were talking and blah, 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 blah. And he was talking about, obviously, my path. Da, 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 da. I started talking about MMA. And it went on for over three hours. Really? Yeah, it was like three hours, ten minutes. But it was the first time I'd ever opened up. And I was talking about, you know... About my journey into MMA, coming back into martial arts, obviously in a long time ago, showing the age. Um, but yeah, look, I mean, my career inverted commas as a fighter, you know, I didn't really have one. I was fortunate enough and I was blessed to have a particular path in MMA. Um, and I wouldn't change it for anything. I achieved and accomplished everything I wanted to. And one of the takeaways from that was I was I was not a world-class fighter. I wanted to be, but I wasn't. And we were talking about it off mic. You know, I was saying about the word acceptance is a big thing for me. I accepted that I was not going to be who I, you know, I won more fights than I lost. Had some good times, had some bad times. Fixed a lot of things with myself, which was the most important point. Um, got to some proving grounds you know, that was the thing. Mm -hmm. um, but I was, I, I believe that your path is laid out before you. And I was not a world-class fighter. I was a world-class ref in waiting. I just didn't know it. Right. But the background and everything I've had in MMA, particularly as a fighter, I wouldn't change that for nothing because it's made me both the person I am today and the referee who I am. If that makes sense. Yeah. So what was you starting martial arts then? Like, like, did, was it movies that got you into it? Was a friend took you to, took you to an old dojo or? Really weird. It's like, you know, as, as a kid, I'd been in and out of various, you know, football, kickboxing, judo. I wanted to try everything, karate. I remember distinctly when I, obviously I was born in Glasgow. It's a, it's a, it's a well-known thing now. People talk about me. A lot of people take the piss, you know, Alan Love, if you're listening, Alan. Yes, I was born in Glasgow. He's always <laughs> jumping on me. We had the we had the promo for Cage Warriors, obviously with Birmingham, and I put it out like retweeted and said my city. He's straight on me. <laughs> oh, I thought you were talking about Glasgow. <laughs> Listen, guys, I'm a Scotsman. You know, I, I was born in Glasgow. Mm. I lived there till I was nine years old. Both my parents are Scottish. My mum remarried, moved to England when I was nine years old, nine or ten years old, and I grew up in England. You know, that's it. Deal with it. I am a proud scotsman i'm a british citizen make no mistake i'll have words with anybody who defies me being a proud scotsman anyway so yeah so like martial arts as a kid i was in i was out i was playing football i did all of these things and i dabbled in several different things never took it serious then when i was leaving school and you know 
the youth took over. I kind of stopped training. I was going out, going to raves. I, w I was of that ilk, that, that era, you know, it, it might, just goes to show my age now. And I kind of left training altogether. I was more interested in buying clothes, music. DJ, I used to DJ too. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Back in the day. Mm. Um, it was a massive... You do a set with DJ Mikey B at some point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be good, actually. Yeah, me and Mike. But um, uh, there's a good story. I've got lots of good stories about him. That's why we'll, I'm here with these we'll, mics. We'll come back on them. Um, so, yeah, so martial arts, you know, I was in, I was out as a kid. It was like, I know you're... Uh, upbringing through martial arts obviously through your uh, through your autobiography you were a lot more storied a lot more in depth I wasn't really like that I was in I was out I never really took or glued to anything and it wasn't until we'd moved house and I was a young like mid-twenties something like that and uh, that's why I believe that everything's on a path for you and my next door neighbour, I came out the house one day and he's like uh, looking at, hi, my name's Paul, I marked the other day, do you like fighting? What? Hang on a minute. He said, yeah, I'm thinking, what does he know? And he said, oh, look, I teach traditional jiu-jitsu, da-da-da-da, would you like to come and train? And this is this was probably 98, 99, something like that, just before the turn of millennium. And... Um, Cut a long story short, he gave me two, uh, two or three VHSs. That shows how long. You know, DVDs weren't around then. VHS videotapes of UFC. Right. You know, one, two, three, whatever it was. I got two and three on on tape on VHS tape yeah. as well. Whichever ones they were, yeah. and of course, like I explained to Dan in the podcast, watching a hundred and seventy pound or a hundred and eighty pound Hoist Gracie killing all these. 200 300 pound men i was like i was captivated immediately i got bomb i want to learn that i mean i'm all in and i went back up to traditional um it was tjk taijutsu kai very well known in the traditional circles in the uk traditional japanese jiu-jitsu headed up by a guy called rossi in akaro ross is still around and i started training in traditional jiu-jitsu and the rest is history from that day on I fell back in love with martial arts, in real love with martial arts. And uh, here we are, all, all those years later. Mm -hmm. I, I've never gone back. And then moving through, you know, it, that was at the turn of the millennium. And then obviously looking at these tapes. And then I was kind of, you know, obviously a lot younger, more athletic. I took to the grappling way more than the striking. I loved it. And um, I was looking for something in the UK. So I started earning, uh, sorry, entering sport jiu-jitsu comps uh, at the turn of millennium doing okay you know for a kid who was green and raw and a novice and then the continual thirst of seeking things out ross ian akaro used to run grapple and strike all right you'd have heard of grapple mm, and strike yeah, absolutely. and you look back in the history of grapple and strike the amount of people in uk mma that that came through that platform there was myself mark weir Tom Blackledge, Ross Mason, mm -hmm. Ronnie Mann. Lee Remedius, was he a part Paul of Paul Sutherland. I think Lee fought... Or was he hook and shoot? He was a hook and shoot over in Florida. Once yeah, I think there. Lee may have fought on one of the early... I mean, this was in the day before. This is the early 2000s. Right. The first cage of 2002, right? Yeah. This was, we, my first MMA fights were on, it was on open tatamis, just down the road in Perd as well. 
right. in Worcester, Purdiswell Leisure Centre. Ross was onto an amazing thing. He just didn't know it at the time. And he actually run it with a guy called Paul Clifton from Combat Magazine. Oh, I, I know you. Yeah, I a used lot. to read combat. Yeah, a lot of people know the name Paul Clifton, but <laughs> anyway, I think they went their separate ways. But Grapple and Strike was like I remember going to watch it for the first time when I I'd got back into training and I watched it. I was like, I want to do that. I've got to do it. And then lo and behold, boom! Six months later, I was in, and I was all in. I mean, that's like a real potted history. Yeah. And then I kept on going through, and then obviously. You know, I'd quickly ascended the rank. Like Japanese jiu-jitsu wasn't giving me what I wanted. Then I discovered freestyle wrestling. And people didn't understand that Birmingham was a hotbed, a real good hotbed. Like my, our wrestling coach, even now at Birmingham, Alexander Stadium, when we go back to wrestling, our wrestling coach is, sev he's now, Jim Alt is 76 years old, still on the mat, you know? And he's restricted. If he grabs hold of you, you'll know about it. Really? Yeah, yeah. Big, tall, six foot four, very slim and wiry. That strength stays with you, don't it? Strength is the last thing. Your power and that, you know, it's the last thing to leave you. But yeah. Jim is, if you looked up the definition old school in a dictionary, there should be a picture of Jim Alt. <laughs> he, he, he was, by trade, he was, a, he was an old headmaster. Right. So he's an old headmaster and as old school as old school can get to the T. Nice. So an, an old school headmaster and a wrestling coach. So you knew when you were there, some of the heady days in Birmingham wrestling were, were phenomenal. You know, way back in the day, we used to be down at Highgate. Uh, the, the guys all know uh, Highgate uh, in Birmingham before that was demolished. Then it moved over to its current home now at the Alexander Stadium in Perry Bar. Yeah, and you know, going through freestyle wrestling, then I discovered Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Obviously, I knew about Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, but I didn't know how close it was. I was more, I, I wanted to go wrestling before I went to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Mauricio had already kind of almost been and gone when he first started. In fact, I had this, had this discussion the other day. Oh, you, I'm all right to go on with this. Fucking you want, hell. <laughs> you know, Remco, Remco Pardo yeah, from, yeah. you know, old school legend, real old school legend. And Cage Warriors, they asked me to do this promotional video. And I was talking about, uh, you know, and anyone will tell you they'll know in, in, in jiu-jitsu. When Mauricio first went on his, Mauricio was on a worldwide quest. For the people who don't know, Hodge, anyone in jiu-jitsu will know who Mauricio Gomez is. For the greater good, you'll understand him more if I say it's Hodger Grace. It's Hodger Grace's father. Legend in the sport of jiu-jitsu. Legend in the sport of jiu-jitsu. Holds Gracie, black belt, one of the originals, pioneer, everything you can think of. He went on a European quest and a worldwide quest to, to take the jiu-jitsu across the globe. When he came to the UK, the first place that he opened up a club and settled in wasn't London, it was here in Birmingham at a place called the Custard Factory. Right. And, and I wasn't there in those days. When I first went to Brazilian jiu-jitsu, 2003, might have been or end of 2002, but it was at Stevie B's gym in Acox Green. Yeah. yeah. And that's when, when Bradley had first came over. When Bradley first came to the UK, Bradley was a brown belt. He wasn't, you know. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, he was a brown belt. Mm. He wasn't even a black belt. Then he went back home and he got his black belt from Carlos Gracie Jr., the head right. of Gracie Baja. Um, and then went on to be the, the legend that we all know him for and love I him for. I remember doing a seminar with him because I used to train with uh, Paul Lloyd Davis at Nottingham Trent University. K 
KSBO was, Paul. That's it, KSBO Paul Lloyd Davis. And he brought Braulio in to teach us. There were about 30 others in the room. And Paul, Paul Davis fancied himself as a bit of a fighter. He always used to go back to the story that he called out Hickson and Hickson had turned it down because there wasn't enough money in it. And he got a bit <laughs> of an ego boost out of that. And, you know, and he was good. He was very strong, but it was very traditional jiu-jitsu with, you know, bare knuckle fist fighting as well. He'd done a bit of both. Um, and Braulio came over and it was like, it was like Paul Davis had a school book from the 1930s and Braulio had discovered witchcraft. Like he was helicopter armbar in him. It was ridiculous. We're all standing back thinking, why are we even here training with this guy when we could be 45 You, you know away? how Paul got hold of Braulio? No. Because he came down to Stevie B's. Right. With a young man called Michael Bisping. Michael Bisping. Who came, there. who came to train with us. Mm-hmm. In, Michael was training with us and me. Came down and beat everyone up because he was just like a rugged fucking animal. Yeah. Horrible, nasty. 120 kilos. Yeah, horrible, horrible nasty. Bastard, you yeah. know, from <laughs> kickboxing, many kickboxing background. But I don't think it was that long after when he fought Barrington. Yes. Barrington Patterson. But Mike used to come and train. He trained with us a few times before he even, this is way before his MMA debut. That's how long ago this was. I, I would have been, I would have come over because I came over with Paul Davis and, and, and Mike to some Stevie B's. Maybe I wasn't there that day. Yeah, but that's how we got hold of Brad. Anyway, right. you know, Paul Lloyd Davis, very eccentric, great character. Yeah. Um, but yeah, when Bradley, I remember the first time I went into, now bear in mind, I was fighting MMA. I was wrestling. I was doing open grappling comps. I was doing jujitsu comp, as in, traditional jiu-jitsu comps thinking yeah this is great what's this fucking brazilian jiu-jitsu and i went to stevie's and i got on the mat with a guy called andy roberts not right. there's there's two andy roberts yeah, yeah. the young the guy down in fairham down south but there's an an original andy roberts from birmingham yeah. he was a i think he was a purple belt at the time uh like 80 kilos and i got on the mat with him he fucking twisted me up. I'm like, what? what's this? No, you said witchcraft. I'm like, what the hell is this? Braulio wasn't there at the time. He'd gone back home. Anyway, cut a long story short. So I was like instantly hooked. And that's when I fell in love with, you know, Brazilian jiu-jitsu and then added that to the arsenal. And I didn't look back on that since. And then I started training. Rachel Wheatley was there, Barry Foley. Mm-hmm. Glenn Broderick, yeah. a lot of the old school names. I always see Barry Foley out in uh, Australia. Yeah, when I go great out guy. He's judging now for the UFC. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. It's a story about how I brought him into that. Really? As originally as a timekeeper, but if we got time, I'll tell you. Um, it's like the Chronicles, isn't it? <laughs> anyway, so I was training with these guys. Not that was it. It was my home. Me and Stevie B met. Like Stevie's like Stevie's my talisman. You know, he's like a father figure to me. Um. I'm thinking, yeah, this jujitsu, this this is what it is, you know. I was like maybe 95 kilos, something like that. And then training, this was no gi first. So I'm thinking, yeah, I know what gi is. I've been doing judo, traditional Japanese jujitsu and that. Then I put the gi on and started doing Brazilian jujitsu. <laughs> Fucking hell. <laughs> like 60 kilo guys hanging off me and that. And then Braulio came back. <laughs> so then I get on the map with Braulio for the first time. Oh, man. And then that's just your ultimate, that's just your ultimate, you know, bring you back down to earth with a reality. Yeah. Um, yeah. We always had the same thing with Victor. We used to bring Victor over to, uh, so Victor Braulio's younger brother, we used to bring Victor over to uh, our conditioning sessions on a Saturday morning mm-hmm. when, he was tra- when he was training for competition. And uh, we'd bring him over and 
he would be absolutely exhausted. Because, I mean, we, we were animals, the old rough-ass boys. Like, we would we would beat each other up and grind through sessions. And it was a fight. It was. It's the way it was in them days. Right. I love it. I mean, I'm, I'm, I wake up every day aching and sore now, but I, I still love those days. But, like, we used to bring Victor down, and Victor would just fall apart on the, on the mat. Like, we'd have him hitting the bag, running a sled, flipping a tire. We'd do, like, interval training, like, five five-minute rounds. I brought my sister to one of those sessions once and she sat and cried when she watched it. It was it was rough. There's a highlight on YouTube somewhere. But Victor, like, we would wear him out for 10 minutes and he'd be laying on the mats like he's close to tears. And like, okay, hold him inside control. Still couldn't hold him inside control. Hold him in mount. Still couldn't hold him in mount. Take his back, choke him out. Couldn't get close to him. When are you thinking? What year are you thinking this is? This was probably 2008. Yeah. yeah. See, before that, I man, I'm going back way before that thinking that... But when Victor first came over, Victor was a purple belt, like a like a little kid, like weak, you know. Don't get angry, Victor. Back then, <laughs> like he was like a little kid, still technical now, but obviously, you know, he was finding it difficult, and he didn't speak much English, and blah 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 blah. Very lovable, and and then he started, and that's really when Bra- when Bradley first came here, even as a brand belt. He was still like technically like just doing weird shit to everyone, you know, helicopter armbars, triangles from everywhere, the crazy telescopic that sat in a guard that you just like what what it like witchcraft, what yeah. the fuck is this, you know, just yeah. doing what he wanted to people. Then Braulio started training like an athlete. Then it turned into a whole different ball game. When Braulio became the black belt, strength and conditioning, training as an athlete, then he turned into this monster and obviously became and the same thing happened to Victor. When Victor first came over, he really was. He was a little boy. Mm. Uh, I, I can't even remember how old he was. But he was the same purple belt that that. Then started training as an athlete. And then you watched him turn into an animal, you know. Mm. And then, like you said, yeah, the times of like anyone who's trained with Victor will tell you. Yeah. It's not pleasant. He doesn't. The first thing that stood out to me, the thing I liked about Victor is that he's a similar size to me. Yeah. Whereas Braulio, he's like he's six foot four. He's he's very long. He's very wiry. He's very good at controlling people with his limbs, and you can't really get near him. Whereas because Victor was more my size, I'm like, okay, I can learn from this guy because some yeah. of the techniques that he uses, I can use. Braulio, I didn't feel very much the same. But first time I rolled with him, it occurred to me that he doesn't have two arms and two legs. He's got four arms that are built like legs. He's got a bit like Paul Daly. He's got a short torso, a short compact yeah. torso, and he's got these four claws that come off it that work independently of each other. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like I remember like something out of a DC yeah. movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like he goes from a from an L sit on his knuckles, and he'll go straight up into a handstand, tucking his legs underneath him. Yeah. Like my legs are too long to do that, which is why I'm saying yeah. he's got you know, four arms instead of two legs. Like he would fold himself up, he'd go underneath and go straight into a handstand on his knuckles and then go back down into an L-sit, fully controlled. Athlete. Amazing. And this is what happened, you know, we watched, I watched, me and Bradley used to train together a lot back then. We used to do, we had the, Stevie was our strength and conditioning coach. So I watched the evolution of Bradley, obviously on a technical level as jiu-jitsu, then he went on to become, you know, bona fide legend. It's like one of the things I'll, I'll, I'll always be proud of, you know, you get a black belt in jiu-jitsu, but, and me and Bradley didn't train together. We had a break for almost eight years. Really? I left Stevie's, was doing my own thing, had my resurgence as a fighter, and me and, I, I didn't put a kimono on for almost eight years, but I knew when I was, I was always still training 
wrestling, no gi, MMA. Blah, so blah, what, blah. what belt are you in, in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu at this point? Me. Had you been graded in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu? I got a, a blue belt from Braulio in 2003. Right. But again, it was like I never trained in the gi. Okay. I did because he gave it to me. But then I was I was always MMA, no gi orientated. Wrestling, MMA, no gi. And I used to dislike the gi with a passion because I didn't like the thought of 70 or 60 kilos controlling me. Climbing up like a spider yeah. monkey. <laughs> I wanted to be able to push you down and hold you down. You know what I mean? <laughs> Don't wrap that around my neck. <laughs> All that used to do my head in. So I, I was kind of, I was restricting myself and that, but I was obviously the, the, the you know, the no-gi focus and MMA focus. And then I had the eight-year sabbatical, a gap between me and Stevie had a fallout stupidly over nothing. And I went my own way and I was doing my own thing, And but I was always still training. And it was then like when I went back, always knew if I was exclusively going back to training jiu-jitsu, it was with Braulio, you know, I didn't want it from anyone else. You know, there's a whole thing in, you know, lineage for jiu-jitsu is important, you know. You know, I go from me to Braulio to Carlos Jr., Carlos Senior, you know it's yeah, it's, it. <laughs> it's, it's it's beautiful, you yeah. know, and and it means a lot. People who are in jiu-jitsu will understand that. And obviously, you know, to be a black belt under Braulio, it's not it's not a you know it's no mean feat. It's it's a very hard earned thing. Mm. Um, but again, I was delayed, you know, like everything for a reason. And then it was almost like when I went back to just train. This is a funny story. When I went back to training in jiu-jitsu, exclusively just jiu-jitsu. Around about 2013, and I put a gi on. It was a no-gi class at first. And then I've gone in and I've put a gi on and put a blue belt on. And people, they're like, fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> they're like, get the fuck, like the ultimate sandbagger. But but I was like, listen, I haven't, wore, I genuinely didn't wear a, a gear kimono for eight, eight years, really? almost to the day, eight years, yeah. But then when I started, you know, obviously everything, Happened very quickly, shall we say. And yeah, um, but that's my story, you know. And like I said, going back, me with fighting, uh, like I said, without plugging a, another podcast, and I don't want to bore you. No, 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 I no. You know, when I talked about that psychological aspect of with me with a fighter, I realised quite quickly about, you know, that this was not for me. Mm. I wasn't going to be who I thought I was. It was a bit older, injuries, and the, the refereeing was taking off. You know, something you know about very well is I first started refereeing 2004 completely by accident. Stevie won the, an event called UK Storm. I remember it clearly. I still have the belt somewhere. I think you fought on the second one. The first really? one was in the field. Aston, no, I didn't. Yeah, I fought You Aston fought the second one. Yeah. Stuart Bars. The first one, I remember that well. The first one was in a field in Evesham in an outdoor marquee. It was fucking amazing. And I turned up. I was supposed to fight, headline the event, but I got injured and I couldn't fight. And then I turned up and Stevie's gone, something's happened to one of the refs. Mark, you do it. I was like, what? I didn't have time to think about it. And I just jumped in and the rest is history. That's how I started. And then I kind of, you know, went on and on and on. And then I got together with Cage Warriors, Andy Roberts, when Cage Warriors done, started doing uh, shows in Birmingham, Coventry, first of all. Uh -huh. And then I got in touch with Cage Warriors 2004. And th those are the guys that gave me the platform. And it just, the momentum built and built and built and built. And it just 
I went on this crazy spiral <laughs> until I got to that point of acceptance. Yeah. I went, listen, I'm gonna. I know I make a difference with refereeing, and that's when I stopped and kind of. But I wouldn't change. You know, I've done a lot with grappling as well, quite extensively with grappling back in the day. Um, what What do you think? That, what do you think the difference is between refereeing if you have fought and if you haven't? Do you think there is a difference? And do you, what do you think you benefit from fighting before you refereed? I'll tell you what the difference is. And the difference stays with the person, one million percent, because having done something, put it this way, here's the analogy, let's take a demographic of UFC fighters and make them referee. You would have some pretty fucking horrendous, Oh yeah. you would have some pretty horrendous outcomings, you know, yeah. because the qualities required stays with the person. And like I said, with me, um, I had the, you know, I go into this mindset. I'm a, a bastard for detail. I'll do the same thing. I do, you know, all the qualities I didn't know I had. I didn't know that they were attributed to, to refereeing until I'd done it. Just because the fact that I'd been a fighter and been a almost long, lifelong martial artist and done this, all that background just helped me and it propelled me. But it's not a prerequisite. Mm. It's definitely not a prerequisite. Because yeah, go on. Sorry. Well, we were talking about this a few weeks ago because you you were highlighting some personality traits of yours that lend perfectly to being a referee, and and I mean there, there are a lot of there, there are a lot of similarities with with our characters, and we we're, we're obviously very different in a lot of ways, but there are a lot of similarities. Our, our passion for the sport and our, our our determination for the right thing to go down every time, no matter what. Is I mean, like you're, you're. I always call you the conscience of MMA. Like you're the, you're the guardian of, particularly of, of European MMA. But now you've crossed over to the UFC. You're the first British referee to get licensed in Vegas. Is that right? The only. The only. Including that, I mean, including boxing. That amazing. even that blew me away. You look at how storied boxing is. And uh, yeah, when I found out that I was the only British referee to be licensed in Nevada. That was a special moment for sure. Yeah, very. So, so, what what about those? What about your yourself as a person, as a character? What are those traits that that help you as a referee? You know, here's the thing. It's funny because the people going to we're laughing at each other here because when I started refereeing, I was doing what no one else was doing. I was doing what no one else would do, and doing what no one else could do. And you'll be the perfect testament to that. When I turned up to refer, it was all, I'm an all or nothing person. You know, if I'm doing it, I'm doing it properly. If I'm not, I'm gone. Like people would talk about, and this is the only, this is the only reference I'll ever make to this person's name was Conor McGregor. When the little episode of us started, if you like, when he was in Poland, when I stopped the fight to ask him to move away from the cage. Mm. And of course, the internet being the internet, oh, Goddard's this, Goddard's that. You know, fuck you, because you don't know <laughs> what Goddard is. You know what Goddard is, because you and anyone else will tell you, from the minute I started refereeing, I was doing the same mm-hmm. with people in shows, no matter who you are, no matter where I was, I was always the same mark. I would stop, the if people were gaining an unfair advantage, and it was it could have been anybody. Nothing to do with Connor, you know, the fact it could have been anybody. 
and the fact that I had to stop the fight to say, come on, look, get, get back, come on, what are you doing? I did people, you'll tell them the same. I'm like at Liverpool with Terry Etim, U, UFC, I've always stopped the fight, mm-hmm. always done something because I want, you know, it's like, I know it's a control free, it sounds a bit strong, but that's that's what I'm there to do. If I'm doing something and I'm a human being, I'm not, I, I'm not perfect. Nothing is perfect. I don't use the word perfect. I actually check myself. I use the word ideal because I don't believe perfection exists in anything and especially not in my game. You know, it's like excellence. People do excellence is a journey. You know what I mean? I'm look. I'm no motivational speaker, but I clearly the 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 ethos and the ethics and all these things that I've employed. You know, it's not by accident I've got to where I've got to, and that's why I try to impress on people, especially new officials. You know, people say, "Oh, you're really lucky," and oh, stop right there. Don't please don't ever call me lucky, and they get a bit. And I'm like, look, don't take it offence, but I didn't win the lottery and I didn't, you know, walk away from my car or an accident there. I said, if you've if you've prepared, like, when you got a UFC contract, were you lucky you got a UFC contract? Hell no. Or did you fucking earn that? I earned it. Through years of blood, yep. sweat and tears. Absolutely. And making the right choices and the wrong ones. Mm-hmm. Sack all of these things. And that's why, you know, without sounding like I'm pushing back on people, I'm not, you know. I say to people, listen, it's on my arm. It's a, a moniker of mine. I will. N- I am most fortunate to do what I do and what I've done. And that ain't come without yeah. sacrificing a price. Please don't ever call me lucky. Yeah, I, I was having this conversation with someone the other day, and they're like, oh, you, you're so lucky to be doing the job that you're doing. I'm like, I've taken hundreds and hundreds of punches and learned many, many harsh lessons and lived in shitty motels, living on peanut butter and and bread and apples for weeks and months at a time to put myself in this position so it's it's kind of similar to, to you like i i went through my career and i was never i was never as technical as gsp i was never as athletic as gsp i was never as heavy-handed as rumble johnson or paul daly or like i look at my teammates and i go andre went as much faster than me paul daly hits harder than me jimmy warled's incredibly strong in, in comparison to me dean i'm a singer's just immensely powerful and strong in comparison to me the one thing i had was that i would i would adapt because i had to and i was stubborn i was well you're gonna know this better than anybody about my stubbornness you were a sick bastard (laughs) i told the story about in fact i mean i've not seen this interview yet please listen to that podcast severe mma is it always no 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 always the raspberry raspberry yeah yeah. i'm gonna get on that because i've not heard that dan strauss raspberry eight dan strauss raspberry eight yeah and it's the podcast that i'd done with him and i was actually met i was talking about you i was saying about you're the only person you're the only and fortunate you know being around one or two fights, should we say, one with two. one or two fighters. To this day, you're probably the only person that sticks in my mind that looked like you were enjoying what you were doing mm-hmm. at points. Is that right? Yeah, 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 100%. You actually looked like you enjoyed what you... And I don't mean just enjoying, like, hey, I'm having fun. And and not in a... Like, look, make no mistake about it. We, this is a fucking fight. And you're there to hurt somebody because if you don't hurt him, you can't stop him in there. And I'm not saying you enjoyed hurting him, <laughs> but at some points you fucking looked like you did. <laughs> you did, you know, but you were so in the moment yeah. and that's the difference, you know, like where you think you lacked technically or athletically and then that, 
if you could stay in that moment, that's undeniable, you know? That's undeniable to to to, to for success. Mm. So where you think you might, I think you're doing yourself a disservice, but where you think you may have lacked in other areas, the stuff you had in others, that's what propelled you to where you got to. Mm. And you haven't closed that book yet. No, I haven't. Got no. to, yeah? yeah. And the same with me, you know, being a rep, I am who I am and I will not change and I haven't changed and anyone who knows me for any period of time will tell you I've been the same this is the thing about social you know what mate? you know yourself fucking hell it's both the <laughs> I great I love watching your interactions on social I, I, I'm, I always try and back you up if I see something that's, yeah. that's worth it and sometimes if I need a backup I might pull Mark Goddard in just to I'm straight in mate and so like people think it's like you know, I am that genuine. You know, people that think, and that's the difference between people say to me, they go, uh, it's like people see me refing and they go like, oh, he's a fucking this, if I'm that. You know what? You're great. If you could tell that from someone refing, oh, I want what you've got. <laughs> you know, it's a difference between uh, when I say to, when I do seminars, like the more in-depth ones, the IMAF ones over a weekend, probably going to be three days now. And I say to people, I can't make you a good referee. I can make suggestions to you and I can give you the, you know, the, the, the right army with the right information and uh, something. I like being a control freak like that. For me, everything has to be correct mm -hmm. or derivatives thereof. Not perfect because I don't use that word. I use the word ideal. But I try and get people to... Teaching the seminars is a huge part. It was big satisfaction for me. But coming up, one of the things I talk about, and I said to people, like, you need to understand the difference between character and reputation. It's a big thing for me. Like, a reputation is what precedes a person, right? Like, Dan Hardy, oh, he's this, he's that. Goddard, oh, he's this and that. You will never meet a person, and you might get a perception on what you think that person's like, because you've heard it from someone else. You can only f understand a person's character when you've met them or had interaction with them. It took me a long time. I'm still learning about that. I have that separation. Look, I'm not going to get hung up on what you think about me because it's irrelevant. You're basing on, you're basing that on a reputation, what you think I am. A character is who I really am and you'll never get to know that. Mm. So really it doesn't matter what you think, you know? Mm. And that's yeah. how I try and separate it. Character, reputation. And it's, uh, yeah, the twi the whole social media thing, mate, fucking hell. I mean, you'll get it tenfold more than me, but it's like, you know, it's that, that, that I think I heard it off Joe Rogan. And he said, you know, the best thing about social media, you can have direct access to somebody. Yeah. And the worst thing about social media is you can have direct access. And these people are looking, I think, you, you, you're fucking mad. Yeah. You're just genu genuinely mad. It's like, I can't, de <laughs> I can't describe it. No. Any, some of the stuff that people say. Yeah. I mean, you'll get your, your damn right. I try not to engage with, if people ask, look, call me out on anything. Come at me. You're welcome to come at me. Two things I ask, two things I'm going to tell you. Come at me correct, factually, and don't abuse me. Because mm -hmm. if you come at me factually we said you know you done this or you done that tell me about it and then i'll be like i'll try and talk to them about it i may not change your mind okay because guess what it's okay to disagree yeah 
So if you come at me, just come at me correct. Let's talk about what actually happened, not what you think happened, because yeah. they're two distinctly different things. Don't come at me with abuse, because I, I fucking guarantee you, if I'm stood in front of you, you are not coming at me with abuse. No. You know what I mean? I, I, have, I have the same conversation sometimes with people when it comes to the analysis stuff that I do, because obviously, like, if you're listening to the analysis of, say, UFC 229 I'm breaking down McGregor Khabib I've I very much felt like I went into that and gave a, a good perspective of of what I see happening based on what's already happened because I can't I'm not predicting what's going to happen I'm predicting I'm, I'm telling you what's most likely to happen based on what I've already seen and Henry Rollins said this on a Joe Rogan podcast and it's always stuck in my mind because I feel very much the same and you'll be the same I'm from a world where if you say something shitty about someone, you fully expect to turn the corner and be face-to-face with that person, right? So if ever I say something about a fighter, if ever it's a critique on their technique or on whatever, I'm quite happy to stand in front of that person and explain myself because I have done my research to back it up. Talk it out. Right, exactly. But like so many people listen to an analysis with their own filter, with their own perspective. And like you said, with reputation, people watch you referee with a perspective already de- decided of who you are as a person when they don't know you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, there's like a, it's like people say to me, they go, what do you do for a living? Well, travel the world to get shouted at. That's what happens. Yeah. I'm a goldfish because I'm in a bowl and everyone around me is shouting all the fucking time, every week. Most of the time, wrong. They're shouting at me inane stuff that's wrong. I wouldn't mind if it was right, but this, but whatever semantics, you know. People are shouting at you, you know. It's and that's the nature of the beast, and that's a quality it's like with me. And again, you will tell me, listen, I don't fucking care who you are. I don't care where you are. I don't care what's at stake. You best believe if I'm refing you, I'm giving you the fair shake mm-hmm. of the whip. Like people said to me with Connor. Connor and in, 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 uh, Habib, would I like to have done that fight? Yeah, of course I would. Part of me don't want to be part of that. But you would know, and he would know deep down as well. I am a professional. I would ref my own son. I would, my quality is a person that people can't know about and people can't tell. The sport means too much to me. When you walk in that cage and that door shuts behind you, you're now my responsibility and you're under my duty of care. And I don't care what's happened before. We could have had the most spectacular fallout in the history of man. And without using Connor as a reference, you know, we did have a pretty well publicized that. But I would ref that guy mm. with the same impartiality and the same professionalism that's taken me to where it's took me today. Yeah. Which is, which is, and I was, I was Octagon side for that fight with, with Artem and, and the drama between Connor and the, uh, the alpha male guys. And, Andre Feely. Yeah, yeah, and, and you know it, it. It is. It is one of those things. It's, it's Connor as a character, but there are, there were so many referees, and I I thought in that moment that I was glad you were refereeing the fight because there were so many referees that wouldn't have done anything because it was Connor, mm. or they wouldn't have done as much because if it was anybody else, they would have probably dealt with it. But because it's mm. Connor, they, they may have not have done. And and you, you're so good at approaching things so objectively and separating any kind of emotion from it. Which is, which is why I call you the conscious of MMA, because you can separate yourself from all of that and you yeah. can deal with whatever's in front of you in the most righteous way possible. And it, I mean, you know, obviously, like I said, people watch things with their own filters and their own emotions anyway. So they're, they're going to base that on... Ju- but 
I, I always know that when you step in there, the, the people are going to get a fair shout, no matter who they are and what's going on. Yeah, and it's almost like, I'm kind of like shaking my head here because people are thinking, oh, you're talking about, listen, man, let me fucking tell you all something as well. And it's almost like, I have to talk about it. Instead of that, I, I have, n- I'm not that person. I'm not that guy. Like, when the Connor thing happened in Ireland and the Bellator thing, I had every man and his dog, BBC, TMZ, fucking, you, honestly, people offering money, this, that, none of it. I absconded and, and, and shut the door on everything. Every Ariel, Luke Thomas, every person of note, every major website you get, like I said, B- BBC Sport, TMZ, everybody. And no, I don't want to talk to anybody. I left it 72 hours. I put my own statement out on my own social media platform, said my piece, boom, job done. That's it, move on. Mm. Never said anything else about it. I know we're talking about it. Never, never played the victim or that. People say, you should have sued, you should have, get the fuck out of here. Never, never done nothing. Left it as it was, dead in the pan at that point. Mm. Not sure exactly what point I'm making here, but <laughs> I think you get what I'm saying, absolutely, you know? Yeah, absolutely do. So um, let, let's let's change direction a little bit then. Let's let's talk about uh, some of your stand up standout memories of, of refereeing. <laughs> Did you say some of my stand up? Stand up. <laughs> I said stand up memories. Like stand out memories. Listen, let, let, uh, in fact, I could, if you don't mind, I'll plan that. Just to give, yeah. like I said, to give you the not the power, like to show you the absurdity and the fucking idiocy of social media. Like, like I mentioned, you know, the famous fallout, whatever. My wife, my son, my family, they all got messages and inboxes and this and that. Like, like you said, with stand-ups, like on social media, like people tweeting at you, I hope you die of cancer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you know why? Because I stood a fucking fighter up. Yeah. And it's like, that's what possesses you. This is what I find fascinating. I don't want to be in front of you to you to repeat that to me. I don't want to see you capitulate in fear in front of me because I know you won't say that to mm. me. But I'm like, what's missing in your fucking mind? Right. That you actually pick up the phone to search for somebody, find him and then say, I hope you die of cancer. Mm. Like To me, it's like, it's more fascinating than angering. Yeah. That side of it's more fascinating than angering. It's like, it's amazing what, what yeah. humans will do. And it's like, unless you've been through that, you, you know, as a fighter when you've lost fights, how people directly attack you. Mm. You know, I'm like, I, I as a fighter too, you know, I've kicked people's ass and I've had my ass kicked. You know, and I know how it feels on live TV and arenas and that. I've been on both sides of the coin and like, like when people attack fighters when they lose, I'm like, that that does anger me a bit more yeah. than study me. When you get somebody so left field, like I want you to die. Mm. Why? Because you lost the bet. Yeah. That's why you want me to die. I know yeah. you're angry, sweetheart, but <laughs> let's let it go. But when people like them, when they attack fighters, yeah. I don't know what I find fascinating about that, but I just, I don't know, man. It just, it's the shitty side of yeah. humans, isn't it? I, I was getting it the other day because it was, what, eight years since I lost to Condit at the O2 Arena. And I mean, I, I don't know what people think my perspective of that fight is, but it's sport and you're losing sport sometimes. And I, the, the person that got up off the canvas on that night 
was an entirely different person to the one that got into the octagon. And I'm thankful for that fight, for that the result that happened. I'm a big fan of Carlos Condit. But right. like, Good like guy. eight years have passed and I'm I'm still getting people tweeting stupid shit at me. From like because the UFC put a video clip up of yeah, me yeah, getting knocked out. And I mean, I've broke that fight down for inside the octagon. I have no problem talking about that fight. I've seen that knockout more than any other knockout. More than any other knockout, there's no doubt. Do you know what I mean? So I, I, I've got no, I've got you no lived it. Yeah, absolutely. I have no emotional attachment to it. I mean, I think people could see that in my post-fight interview. What went wrong? I got, I got hit in the face. I mean, that, that's you've what just went took wrong. that. I'm um, being a referee. Okay, one of the things that stood me in good stead. I'm the stickler for detail. I've got this mad photographic mind of. I, I will go upstairs. I'll come back downstairs. Don't ask me what I've come downstairs for. I'll forget. <laughs> but when I referee a fight, and then uh, everything, it's like a little memory card in my mind. Every little detail sticks there. Yeah. I go into this place in my mind that, that keeps it there. Uh, you know, a quality. I don't, I don't know. I just, it's what stood me in good stead. But you're going about that. The point I'm making is after that fight, the what you show humility and acceptance because you got up and your actual words were, it was Rogan, he said to you there, and you went, ah, I got punched in the fucking, I think he said fucking face. Oh, but you certainly said you went, ah, I got punched in the face. <laughs> like the most, the most, you know, pragmatic description of what, I got punched in the fucking face. Mm. And he, he punched me first or harder, whatever yeah. it was. You show acceptance. And I'm not, this is not the blow smoke podcast, you know. Oh, we're going to get shit from Catterall for this, you know what I mean? From we're, who? From Adam Catterall. We're being far too nice to each other. Yeah, no problem, Adam. <laughs> you can be as fucking nice to me as you want when I see you. <laughs> I want to meet this guy. <laughs> I want to meet him. We'll take a drive to Liverpool. Yeah, no someday. problem. No problem. Um, yeah, it's like, you know, that's a big thing for me is humility. And ex people think, like, it, it just, mate, I could go on all day. People go with, um, you know, when I'm refereeing, oh, God, oh, oh, he always gets involved in the fight and that. That's my fucking job, you <laughs> idiot. It's my fucking job. And it, mate, they think it's like, here's a go, these referees, fucking hell, all these fouls, they don't do nothing. Yeah. God, oh, sees a foul, he acts on it. This fucking referee, why is he always getting involved? Come on, yeah. what do you want? Can't make everybody what do you want? It's like, I say to people, like, the, the analogy I try and use I've had fight of the year candidates, okay, where people don't know you're the referee. That's a utopia as a ref. Contrary to what you think, I don't want to say shit during a fight. I don't want to say nothing. Two words, five times each. So 10 words, fight, stop. I'm going to say that for five rounds if I'm doing a main event or a title. And some of the times I've done that and the fights have gone on, I can think of, I don't know, um, uh, Jose Aldo, Chad Mendes too. Carlos Condi and um, uh, Johnny Hendricks. Oh, For, you know, mm. but, or I could go on. Brian Stan, Vanderlei Silva, all of these fights. And people think, the point I'm making is, you know, a referee, if, understand this. If you ever hear me talk in a fight, it's because something's happened. That's it. Mm -hmm. If I'm to, I'm not asking how you are. I'm not commenting on your shorts. I'm not commenting on that. Just understand, if you hear me talk in a fight, it's because I've saw something. I don't want to be on camera. Yeah. I don't care if you think I am. Listen, 
I'm big and ugly enough that I've been on camera 10 million times. That's not what I'm there for. The people who know me will know me, they understand. My job is to have a little mantra. So every time we have a man, like when I walk in the case, sometimes I look at you before the fight, you know, yeah. a little acknowledgement. All the time I'm doing the same thing in my mind. There's a little mantra, like a little one door will open, one door will close. Mark the referee steps out, everything else goes behind the door, gets shut till I'm done. And it's like, let the fight play out, protect the fighters. That's it. And I don't referee fights and I don't watch fights. I read fights. That That's the place I get transported to in my mind because mm. it's like a story and you have to read. And listen, guys, like I said, I'm a human being. Certain words I don't use, you know, lucky, hate. I don't hate anyone or nothing or nobody. And... Uh, <laughs> What's the word I'm looking for? Let's talk about reading the fight, you know, with with luck, hate, and... You don't use the word perfect. The word perfect, because I'm not perfect. Mm. I'm a human being. Perfection to me, it's like a... I'll always try and be perfect, because that's the kind of person I am. Every time I step in that octagon with two fighters, my passion for the sport, I can't... I do wear my heart on my sleeve, as it were, but... People can't see that doesn't emanate through TV or through social media. I'm a human being, mm. but this sport means a lot to me. I'm always going to give those two fighters everything I've got. Yeah. Sometimes I may come up short and, you know, base it on a percentage basis. You know, refereeing for 14 years, 40 countries, 5,000 fights. You know, things sometimes are... and. You know, talking about referees being criticised. Yeah, it comes, it's part and parcel of the job. I get that. And I'm big and ugly enough to accept that. But remember two things. If you're going to come at me, come clean and come correct. Mm. That's all I ask. Yeah. I, I quote you a lot because I, I did your... And anybody that's got any interest in MMA, if you're, I know you don't do them as, many, as much anymore, but you're refereeing and judging seminars. I, I It was fascinating. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. But there was one sentence that stuck in my mind that I have quoted over and over again since I came to that seminar and it was I can't be preoccupied with what I think might happen that stuck in my mind because that's for me if I'm if I'm commentating on a fight if I'm sitting octagon side commentating on a fight I try I, I'm I, I, I'm in a very objective role I, I don't want to feel like I, I commentated uh, Jimmy Wallhead's uh, UFC debut and, and he lost and it was difficult for me to watch and I said at the start of the commentary but my concern going into that one was that I was going to be too critical of Jimmy because I know how good he is. Mm. And I know sometimes he struggles to put it all together when it comes to the fight. Because Jimmy, you know, you know this, Jimmy's one of the best fighters on the planet. Like I, I, on, on, his, on his good day, I'd put him in against any of the top 10 in the UFC. He, he is that kind of fighter. And, and it, was, it, was, it was a challenge for me uh, judging that. But commentating that, but I, I, I kept that in my mind all the way through it, and I've quoted you so many times on that. And you talk about the word perfect, and it reminds me of something else because one of my fight day movies that I used to watch was Friday Night Lights. And when you say the word perfect, a lot of people have they have a they have their own interpretation of what that means. Obviously, people you know people say perfect like everything's everything's like everything's everything's correct everything's ideal i mean there isn't another word to replace perfect but in that movie uh it was um what's his name uh billy bob thornton he he changed the interpretation of the word perfect 
So perfect is the best that you can be, the most ideal version of yourself. So as as his players were walking out for the final, he said to them, can you be perfect? And it wasn't about being being perfect in the grand scheme as, as like a the world perspective of perfect. It was perfect for that individual. You know what I mean? I get but, that. But I would say that ideal is a better word to put in there. I, more impactful for a movie to use the word perfect, but ideal is is ideal. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's it's. I almost feel like when I talk about myself, it's like almost like you're doing a, a disservice on myself. People have said to me before, they're going, what's your perfect stoppage word? Never had one. Oh, what's your perfect? And I try and explain to them about that word ideal, you know, and I say to them like, because again, they can't look. When I referee, I'm not trying to please anybody because I'm not in that space in my mind. Nothing bothers me. Nothing in regardless of what you may think nothing and you'll know you know somebody as revered as yourself with a reputation of yourself hopefully you know when you tell people they'll understand it you know nothing phases me i really don't oh, if we had more time i'll tell you about the story in cambodia i'll tell you about my russian chronicles anywhere in the obviously that's, that's podcast two we'll have podcast two we'll the russian more. chronicles the cambodia story that's fucking 101 mm, really you know that obviously the the high profile altercations everybody knows about you know i'm not i'm just there to do a job and like i said i'm just i'm a fucking human being i love what i do passionately and that's that's what you know people said to me about when they talk about the best ref about honestly honest to god it's and people look i'm a man you know i'm a man with needs Mm -hmm. and when people say nice things it makes me feel nice of course it does i love it it's fantastic but whether you think I'm the best or not, you know, that's a matter of opinion. That's all that is. It's a matter of opinion. If I'm considered amongst the best, you know what? Thank you very much. That's good for me because there's 7 billion people on this planet. And if I'm considering the top 5, 10, 3, 2, 6, 5, whatever it may be of, of anything, well, fuck me. I'm happy with that. Yeah. You know, I'm doing okay. And then people say about the best, I, I do want to be the best, but to go back to what you're saying, just the best version of me, mm-hmm. because I know if I am the best version of me, I'm going to give the fighters everything that they, you know, need and want. And that's whether it's doing a UFC world title and fucking the Las Vegas, Nevada, or doing an amateur, the first amateur fight that I will do this Saturday in my hometown in Birmingham, you will get the same mark. I'll give you the same air of confidence, the same, you know, uh, crack of the whip, shake of the stick, and the same attention to detail. When I ref, I ref. You know, you, as I walk in, you know, that one door opens that I move into, and the other door shuts. Like, when the cage door shuts, it kind of, like, shuts the door in my mind, and then I know I'm there to do my job, mm. and you'll never see me take my eye off it. Is there, a, is there a difference in feeling for you personally when you're going into to referee different fights? So, say you're doing you know, an undercard fight on a smaller show compared to a main event in Vegas. Is there a is there a heightened sense of responsibility for you when you're getting in there because it's a bigger fight or do you approach every single fight the same? The approach is the same. Like, my approach will never change. Like I said, I'll be doing this for, I'll give these two, there's some amateur fighters going on on Saturday and I love refing amateurs. It's the future of the sport. To my, my work with IMAF, you know, amazing. I love that, that arena and that, that that world my approach will always be the same because like I said, i'm a creature a habit and it's got me to where it's got to the heightened sense of 
awareness is totally different. If I'm standing in Las Vegas doing a soup, you know, Daniel Cormier and Stipe for the World Heavyweight Championship, yes, mm-hmm. I'm I'm in a place in my mind where I'm fully aware of where I am. I'm fully aware of what's at stake, but everything's settled. You know, that's why I try and say to people like would-be officials, oh, you for to say that everything's easier from the couch is a very good adage, mm. you know, because I saw would-be referees literally crumble on amateur shows. Yeah. And I'm like, I can't explain to you. I couldn't bottle or describe or explain the pressure and the realities of you understanding where you're at. So yes, when you are stu- or you're in refereeing Anderson Silva in Brazil, yeah. or Jose Aldo in Brazil, in Rio de Janeiro as the last belt holder in the UFC, all these things, you know, you know that weight of consequences on your mind, mm. but your performance has got to be the same. Yeah. And and your air of expectancy is the same, your your method and your approach is all the same. But yeah, make no bones about it. The two amateur fighters, yeah, I won't feel as heavy. I won't feel as heavy on Saturday as I do in Vegas, but you'll definitely get the same me. Mm. Now, if you don't mind, please forgive me. I want to take this in a bit of a narcissistic tangent here. How was I to referee as a fighter? Was it was it easy? Did you ever discipline me? I don't really remember anything. No. And he said, narcissistic, but mate, great, because, I, you know, people talk about... You know, like I said, you as a person, you know, the qualities that the way you did with, with, um, I think I could commentate, you know, because I, I know the game and that. Yeah. Whether people would like a, a, a dulcet, dull, brummy tones and other <laughs> that. But I'm not saying, look, I'm a referee. I'm not saying I could, do, like, when you done it in look, mate, you blew everyone away. I genuinely believe you're the best. I've said it openly. I've said it privately. I've said it publicly. I think you're the best in the game at what you're doing right now. Thank you. You've said the same. To, uh, so what's his name in the Adam? Is it Adam? Catrell. Yeah. Catrell. Yeah. Catrell, you're going to fucking hate this part. <laughs> but it's the Goddard and Hardy self-appreciation <laughs> fan club. You know, why can't you recognize excellence? Yeah. And that's what, you know, again, that without being the most, again, that excellence. Excellence is not, a, you know, it's a continual journey. The most difficult thing about it, it's not getting it. It's staying on that track because you, you, you're you chasing after it. But going back to what you're saying, you as a fighter, it was. Here's the thing, like, generally, the higher the scale of the fight, the easier it is to ref in terms of, in this is a generalization. They won't foul, you know. So you're still looking out for these things, but of course fouls will happen. But generally, when you're, dealing with the consummate pro you know you are more inclined to focus on you know i'm in a peripheral sense because you're looking at everything around but generally you're definitely there in the moment with the fighters because by and large i'm not saying it doesn't happen but accidents will always happen but you won't get a world champion fucking holding the shorts or you know you yeah. might do grabbing the fence yeah <laughs> but, some of that, but, but yeah. in general you know yeah if you were to take it on a percentage basis, the world champions and, 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 and you know, is another fight I was thinking of with when you're thinking like fight of the year was Benson Henderson and Frankie Edgar oh, in yeah. Japan for mm-hmm. the for the lightweight title. Fights like that, they always stick in the mind. Uh, you know, like um, I said about Aldo and Mendez, like fight, like, here's a classic case with a referee. Um, there was a very 
well-known point at the end of that first round when the, the sort of punch came after the belt. Yes. Now, here's the thing. And we've discussed this on Twitter. I was going to bring this up. Please carry on. Okay. We've discussed it on Twitter. We have. Okay. We, well, we, we stood side by side arguing with other people about it. Oh, yeah. So the story is this. Obviously, this is the rematch. Uh, it was in the Marcazinho, which is the small, Casino small in Portuguese, next to the Mar the famous Maracanar in all the stage was set, all the precedent, sorry, I keep bringing that, mm -hmm. all the precedent was set. Aldo at the time was the last Brazilian with a belt. So it was almost like you could feel that expectancy, yeah. like the last Bastian. He was the last guy with that belt in Brazil. He, I could almost see that as an invisible cloak on his shoulders, you know? These are the things you read. Anyway, cut a long story short. I remember, so that fight kicked off. And the way that the, those of you who have ever been in the Maracazine, you'll see it's like a domed roof, like a tin roof. As you know, Brazilian crowds are passionate, mm. to say the least, like a football crowd. Yeah. And I remember it was getting to there. Uh, I think Aldo clocked him some point through the round and the, the, it was like the first surge of crowd noise. I didn't really get an appreciation for it when they were introducing them. But I remember thinking, it was almost like people had put headphones on me. I'm thinking... And then when he clocked him with that, I think it was one, two, pushed him back to the fence. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, I already hear the 10 second clappers and that's like your your countdown to start in the fight, thinking, I'm not going to hear the bell. I'm not going to hear the bell. I already told myself in my mind, I can't fucking hear the bell. So here's the thing. I'm now faced with two points. Obviously, when we hear the 10 second clappers, what we do as a referee, I'll start, it's like a 10 elephant, nine elephant. So you're, you're what you're anticipating and you'll see I'll edge closer because I'll get closer to jumping and separate the fighters. And I'm also trying to count it down in my mind to be right there to boom, straight in. Because when the bell goes, it's the referee signal to stop the fight. Generally, two fighters will stop, but make no bones about it. That signal is for you to stop the fight. I'll do two things, audible and physical insertion. Sometimes you don't have to because I'll just separate. Anyway, somebody thinking, I can't hear this. He's the crowd think he's finishing. So this all this noise comes up, boom, and the tin roof's like it's pouring down, like raining down this noise. I'm thinking, fucking hell. What I don't want to do when he I think he's close to finishing, I jump in and separate. A second later the bell goes. Imagine that. Mm. I ain't getting out of Brazil alive. Nah. You know, so I'm waiting then uh, of course the, the, the watching audience on the production broadcast, it's clear as day. They can hear the bell. I, I'm in the fucking eye of the storm, right in the epicenter. And I'm, I can't hear. I remember going over to, to, to Mark Ratner. Mark, Mark, I can't hear the At that point, what did we do? Anyway, semantics. I think that the right hand was thrown. The bell's gone. The right hand's landed. I jumped in. Boom. That round was over. Yeah, it was a significant shot. What can I do? Tell me as a human at that point, what can I do? If I can't hear the bell, what do I make it up? And I spoke about various ways of overcoming it with technology. And just to show you the absurdity, and I think a good friend of yours, Mr. Dwayne Ludwig, yeah, who was in Chad's corner at the time. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, fucking hell. And after the fight, Dana, thankfully, he relinquished it a bit. You know, he, he validates is the right word. Yeah, you know, agreed. He went... And they said, oh, what about the punch after yeah. the bell? Because all the people yeah. on the couch, they don't give it. They're oh, fucking referee, what did that? I can't hear dick. I can't hear shit. 
It's to this day the loudest crowd. I think of it, I know Dublin was very loud, yeah. but at that point but that was only just, seven thousand people. Like, it was loud for seven thousand yeah. people, but I, I would imagine it didn't. In Rio, it was just so intense mm. that whole thing. Anyway, and then the so Dana's gone. Yeah, we couldn't hear a thing, yeah. and I was like, "Yes, yeah, I remember yes. that press. No, nobody could hear the fucking bell." Yeah, and Dana yeah. went, "No, we couldn't hear a thing." I'm mm. thinking, "Fuck, I'm exonerated." I go to Dwayne Ludwig, and this is when I'm talking about the absurdities of the people that I can't cope with. I can't cope with absurdness, <laughs> you know. I mean, I am Mister Common Sense, and then uh, Dwayne, how how much do you think the punch? He goes, "Yeah, yeah, I think it's significant." But he goes. He said, nobody could hear nothing. He goes, nobody could hear the bell. Nobody. I'm thinking, fine. He goes, blame the ref. (laughs) What the fuck? And I'm like, brain. I almost want to grab him, go, come here. (laughs) Say what you just said again. No one could hear the bell. Yes. Blame the ref. What, am I a fucking bat? Have have I got supersonic hearing? I'm like, do you know what I mean? I was like, almost to the point I'm thinking, he knew where I was. We need to get you some of those big comedy ears. Yeah, like bat thinking. He's, go, he's going, <laughs> nobody could hear the bell. It was so loud. Nobody could hear the bell. Blame the ref. Blame the ref. <laughs> I was like, oh. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, we, we got into it with, with somebody on Twitter because it was the Holly Holm, Jermaine, Jermaine Durandamy fight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there were two occasions where she landed punches after the bell. Uh-huh. But the same thing, like, and, and my argument, and I can't believe I'd not actually considered this before, but during this argument, I came to a realization that in all of the... I've had 36 pro MMA fights. I've never had my hearing tested for an MMA fight. Now, Matt Hamill was a fighter in the UFC. Mm. Couldn't hear anything at all. Mm-hmm. Bisping used to complain on the Ultimate Fighter that he would be carrying on the round after the bell because he couldn't hear the bell. Genuinely. So, exactly. Genuinely yeah. couldn't hear the bell. So we don't know what fighters have got hearing issues and not because nobody's tested. Yeah. You're going to say something like No, that. no, no. I'm well, waiting for you. <laughs> Set well, it up. So, well, th- so the, the point is, like you said, you back me up on it. That it's, it's the referee. It's the signal for the referee to stop the fight. One million percent. Because what if the classic case in point, I'm deaf. Mm. It's not an excuse. I'm fucking deaf. I can't hear the bell. But there is a name for it as well when you're in competition, when you're in a heightened state yeah, of awareness. of course there your, is. Your, your senses shut down and focus. 99% of the time, you will see a good sportsman or a good sportswoman when they're exchanging, they hear the bell. They might not pay attention to the clappers. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. When you hear the bell, I remember from my fights, you're in there, you're thinking, fucking hell, hurry up and get to the bell because you're waiting for it. Mm. You know, when the bell goes, 99% of the time, the bomb, they drop, they drop down tools and they walk away. Obviously, if they're close to a finish and there's a big bum bum bum, that's the onus on you as a referee. You can't rely on them to do that. So you do two things. This is how I teach people. You'll close the distance because obviously you want to be there to jump in. And then when the bell goes, I'm loud, audible, stop or time. That's my first thing. Then I will interject across physically. Mm -hmm. So if you're deaf... There's no mistake. You're not going to hear me say that. But then at the same time I'm saying stop, I'm intervening physically to there. At that point, that arm is out straight and I've intervened. There's no mistake. You know that the round is over. So if something comes on through or over that line, after you've done that, that's your marker as the jurisdiction to say that's after the bell. Yes. The mistake a referee will make is they may shout time, and then they 
they don't interject, so they don't give themselves that physical reference point, and then they can't tell was the punch cocked before the bell because it's distortion of time almost. Mm-hmm. But the way of doing it as a ref is, like I said, most of the time you're there, you're close, ref, bump, they'll separate. But if I'm there to throw my hand across, that's my measure, that's my line. If you come across that or over that or through that, after I've done it, it's clearly after the bell. Yeah. And it will help you make your assessment as a ref. Yeah. So I was a sick fighter, but I wasn't a dirty fighter then. I no, de- <laughs> most definitely not a dirty fighter. But at points, I did question your sanity. <laughs> <laughs> so what's, what's that? Because the, the one that stands out to me was the Matt Thorpe fight. And people still talk to me about that. Because like the, the Amazing GSP fight. fight, right? everybody talks about the GSP armbar. That wasn't the first time that had happened to me. Because they don't know you. Matt Matt Thorpe had tried to take my arms away with a couple him. of times. Yeah, not twice. just once. Huh? First round and fourth round, I think it was. Was it a triangle arm bar? Or was it straight arm lock? The, the first one was a the first one was a straight arm bar, and then he then he set the second one up with a triangle arm bar, and then I, I think, think so. he switched it straight to arm bar. Yeah. But I mean, I was wriggling like a motherfucker to get out of that. And here's the case in point: it's like when you said about you go back to the one of the little mantras you said, "I can't be preoccupied on what I think is going to happen." Mm-hmm. And that's a good training point as a as a referee. It's the it's the common sense thing again. I've saw fighters referees jump in. What are you doing? Mm. What are you doing? No, like that because I I could be I'm not very flexible. So if you get my arm locked and that, but I'm gonna tap pretty quick. You're flexible, and you're stubborn, mm-hmm. and you know like if your arm if you hyperextend and pop it in a fight, you may have some you may have some cartilage ligament damage swelling etc etc but it's gonna happen you know as a referee i'm sitting there watching and i'm watching your arm hyperextend hyperextend no problem what i'm looking for is a physical deformation of that arm like the tim sylvia frank tim sylvia frank mia or big noggin frank mia you know it's always frank in it huh ronda misha ronda misha even was not like her arm was severely hyperextended but she's still in the fight. What I'm looking for is a, it's like a physical pop. Okay. You know, so I'm looking for a, a break. Because mm-hmm. if your arm's bum, 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 and it's back, so some people are double jointed yeah. and their arm will virtually fold backwards. And I can't, oh, I thought your arm was broke. Yeah, well, it's fucking not. And now you've got me out of the fight. They're going to come after me. Yeah. I use the same analogy. I try and explain to people two fighters are standing, pop, pop, double jab, left hook, stop. Oh, so I thought you were going to get knocked out. Yeah, you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. I try and explain to referees, you, you as a referee, you must base on what actually happens, not what you think may happen. Mm. Does that make sense? Yes. If you're dealing with two amateurs, air of caution, common sense. If your arm gets fully locked and you're not showing me a reasonable defence, I'm going to stop the fight. But when I'm dealing with two professionals, come what may. You get trapped in a heel hook, a knee bite, any any joint submission, you know the risk. If you can't get out and you don't get out, I'm going to let it break. Yeah. Then I'm going to stop the fight. Do, does that perspective change from amateur to professional? Are, are you more inclined to stop an amateur? Yeah, fight? that's what I was just saying. One hundred percent. And you imagine me stopping a UFC title fight because the guy's arm hyperextended. Yeah. <laughs> They're yeah. going to run you out of town. You Absolutely. know, if that arm lock is there and you see it. If there's a physical or a sudden change in direction there, I'm convinced the arm's broke, it's over. If I'm slowly bent, I can bend your arm over my thigh, whatever I make, and the guy's not tapping, a bit like you were with GSP. You're not tapping, and you were wriggling like a 
motherfucking to get out. <laughs> Same with Matt Thorpe. I'm not stopping the fight mm. because I don't see a deformation in your arm. Yeah. I don't see what I consider a, a typical break. Some people can hyperextend more than others. Yeah. But an amateur, always on the side of caution. Yeah. And these are young kids, etc. And I'll always teach a referee. I'm not waiting for the, 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 the arm to break. Yeah. I will give you a chance to show me you know what's happening and show me you know what a proper defense is. And if you don't, I'll take that decision away from you. Yeah. Uh, oh, sorry, take that decision for you. Because mm, yeah. it's common sense. Yeah, I, I was down at um, uh, Victory Fights Corner in Adam Amasinga a, a, a couple of fights ago and um, there were some amateur fights on the card. There were great fights. And there were these two kids, like 16, 17, they, it, it was a real tussle. They were back and forth. They were beating the hell out of each other. The scrambles were very even, but very, very lively. And it ended up with one of the guys getting caught in an armbar. And it was it was, it was was getting pretty serious. Amateur fight? Bad. Amateur fight. But it, it, like amateurs as well as being sort of 16 or 17. And uh, Dan Moverhead, he was refereeing. And he he jumped in. And he let it go for as long as it... He, he let it go for as long as he could. But then... He jumped in and stopped the fight, and this guy's corner man just lost his shit. He was he was yelling and screaming, and and Dan was like, "Look, like trying to explain exactly. To you. Like I'm, I've done him a favor. I'm trying to save the rest of his career. Like especially at that age. I mean, I was caught up in ego, and I got into every it's fight. It's an amateur fight. Yeah, you've got to you've got to think you've got to think long term. But professionally, it's on the it's on the professional because you know the word is professional. But like I I always got into a fight with the mentality that that was the last thing I was doing. Like the last 15, 25 minutes of my life was that fight. You were fighting professional. Exactly. Yeah. You had more at stake, even by the by the definition alone. Yes. You know, and the guy who was going mad at, you know, maybe he was doing it because it was, <laughs> if I was the ref and I stopped it, I'm pretty sure he might have a different reaction. Yeah. But it was funny because the security was stopping him getting in the cage and I'm like, just... Just let him get in there. No, I'm really. Pretty sure, Dan can handle himself. In yeah. This well, let me at him. Let me at him. Yeah. Let go. Right. Yeah. We'll talk about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I, I was trying to think back. So these these are a, a good two handfuls of fights that you refereed of mine. Wh- which which are the ones that stick out to you? Because I was trying to remember. I, I mean, you know, I'm focused entirely on my opponent. I I'm, I don't always take into account who's refereeing. I remember some of them. I remember the Azidro fight in Nottingham, the, the second one. Enter the rough house. That was at 160. That, that stuck out yeah. because the first fight was ruled. Uh, it was a decision for no, me, but it was only two. Diego rounds. Gonzalez. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The, oh, the, yeah. the referee, very yeah. loose. The referee and your first fight just let everything go. You, I think you were punched to the back of the head six or seven times. Elbowed. Yeah, I lost the or feeling el- down the yeah, side of my face for about two. Which months. was bad. Then they asked me to look at it. And I'd review, and again, straight down the line, fucking hell, come on, man. Yeah, that's, you were clearly fouled on multiple occasions. And I think the promotion overturned it. I gave my opinion. And then I rematched that. And obviously, you like a bit of needle before your fights. And obviously, there was a lot at stake. That sticks in mind. The Danny Rushton fight sticks in my mind. Because there was a lot of... There was a lot of aggro going into that. I think more from his team, wasn't Uh it? Yeah, yeah. Well, because I'd beaten... 
I'd beaten Matt Thorpe, and Matt Thorpe That's was it. considered to be one of Danny Rushton's students. That's it, and yeah. Danny Rushton was this old-school bare-knuckle boxer veteran that was coming back to claim what was rightfully that team's. And yeah. I always loved the Northern Cartel guys, and that that the, the little bit of like playful animosity we that had. It was proper banter. It was. Like, it was gym rivalry, but done correctly. Yeah. Like, when, when, when uh, uh, I was in the Matt Thorpe fight, I think we both had about six corner men in each corner and they were yelling abuse at each other during the fight as well but it was not there was no malicious intent can, I, can I just common. reiterate can I just say that there there was no fucking way was there six people in each <laughs> corner no not on my watch <laughs> okay there were, there were a lot of voices in. That I think one. what Dan's referring to is that a lot of each team were in close proximity <laughs> to the cage there we go either sitting there because yeah, well, we had the we had the ringside tables. Didn't yeah, we? there so were we all a lot that. of people. You put it this you way: you you had corner. twenty cornermen, but there were sat in chairs. Yeah, yeah, definitely yeah. not six in the corner. I'm not having that. <laughs> <laughs> the Danny Rushton fight sticks in the mind. Obviously, the rematch with um, Azidro. as we did Azidro. Yeah, um, when you Chad Reiner. Oh, yeah. Fights. The, you had a bit of needle there too. Yeah. Something about you in needle. I know. I don't know what it is. And obviously the most, probably the most famous needle stick was Marcus Davis. Yeah. Fight. I ref you twice in the UFC. Right. Um, Amir and, yeah. uh, and Davis. Uh, uh, Marcus Davis. Yeah. yeah. The Sadala fight was a weird one, wasn't it? The, I, it was... It was strange because I was excited because I was fighting in my hometown. I never thought the UFC was going to come to Nottingham because the ice arena... Was, was that Munoz and Mark Munoz and... The main event was yeah. Stipe against Struve. Wow, shit. Yeah, right. Imagine so, that. All right, okay. Wait, I was thinking of Munoz and... Munoz and Mashida. Where was that then? Mm. Must have been another fight. Yeah, I'm not sure. But yeah, that the, the Chad Reiner fight sticks in the mind... Um, I remember you fought a Spanish kid in Coventry, Arborello, yeah, Arborello, Arborello, and you started like doing matador shit, <laughs> <laughs> winding your hand up. That sticks in the mind. Um, loads, mate. Yeah, they're all, all for different, all for different, uh, for different reasons. And I remember when you fought at Ultimate Force, you fought Daniel Veitchel. That was yes, that was a that was a. I think I wrote about that in my book actually because I almost lost. I could have lost my UFC contract. Yeah, because they were saying, didn't Andy Lillis give you the contract after post fight? They, they had the contract before the fight was sitting on the on on the table next to pending the cage, pending the result. Yeah, and yeah. so I had fought Chad Reiner I think two weeks before, and as soon as that fight was over, before the UFC offer came through, because Chad Reiner was a UFC vet, like I, I knew that I had to beat certain guys to to get. The, the attention of the UFC that that was one of the guys so I'd I'd beaten Chad Reiner then the, literally the next day I was talking to uh, to, to the, the Ultimate Force guys and, and they were like we'd love for you to, to main event the card we need a we need a main event we need a headliner so I'm like yeah great get me a anybody with a winning record I don't care who it is I want someone with a winning record someone that's respected so they pulled up Daniel Weichel I accepted the fight I signed the contract they started selling tickets and then Joe Silver called Andy Lillis and was like UFC contracts on the way. We'll sign him for four fights, and Andy was like, "He's he's taken another fight." And obviously, Joe Silver in his mind is, but the UFC contracts here just pull out of that fight. But for me, I'd already committed to that. I knew people were buying tickets, and in my head, as stubborn as I am, if I can't beat Daniel Vaishal on Ultimate Challenge, you shouldn't be the I UFC. I shouldn't be in the UFC Ultimate Force. I shouldn't be in the UFC anyway. Yeah, definitely an Ultimate Challenge. Yeah, <laughs> that was wasn't it? no, yeah. yeah. And I, I remember walking out to the... And Jimmy Wall had saved my career on that night, I feel. And I, I, I'm not sure whether I've ever told Decision, him. Decision, wasn't it? 
Uh, no, I stopped him in the second with elbows. Did you? Yeah, stopped him no with shit. elbows. Yeah. So the f- I lost the first round because if you remember the Ultimate Force cage, they had like a like an angled pad up against the fence, which was about it was about six inches high. triangular pad. That was it. Yeah, and I. I couldn't get my feet close enough to the fence to stop him getting his arms around my legs. So he just kept taking me down against the fence and attacking my neck. And I kept trying to get back up. And the whole round was basically me either defending takedowns or chokes. And walking out to the fight, I actually came out to um, uh, a Fleetwood Mac song, Don't Stop. Don't Stop Thinking About Tomorrow because the UFC Mm. contract was there and needed that that win. You know what I mean? And I, so uh, as I walked out, all of a sudden it occurred to me that I literally could just lose my opportunity to fight in the UFC here. And I'd already lost an opportunity out in Japan because I got disqualified for a, for an accidental groin shot. Monma? Uh, no, uh, Yoshida. Monma, you beat I, the I first beat, one. I beat Monma. I stopped him in the third and then Yoshida was the finals. Yoshiyuki Yoshida. And yeah, you got DQ'd for an accident. Yeah, accidental yeah, they fucked shot. you over. Yeah, and, and put the belt over him on the stretcher. Yeah, 100%. I remember that. Unbelievable. Um, so as I was walking out and like my family are there and it was, it was like, I was ready for the celebration of signed the UFC contract. We're, we're there. We made it. And as I was walking out, it occurred to me, I, I could literally just lose that right now. I didn't need to take the fight. I was doing it because I did. You stopped him, it. Of course. I remember. Yeah. And I, I lost the first round and I remember t- I was in my corner for the majority of the first round and I had Nathan Leverton and. Uh, Owen Comrie and Jimmy in my corner and as I turned to Jimmy Jimmy looked at me and he went what the fuck are you doing what what do you mean what are you doing what are you doing if he takes you down again just stay on the ground with him just stay on the ground with him (laughs) so so like like, pragmatic (laughs) advice 101 isn't it yeah what the fuck are you doing that's the best line that you could ever get (laughs) if you lose the first round yeah so he he took me down and I reversed it I used a uh, an old just an old school sweep sat myself into half guard and I was elbowing him in the head and he was covering and Jimmy shouted his body's open so I came down and I elbowed him one time in the solar plexus and his his arms dropped and then I hit him a couple of times in the head and you, and you jumped in and stopped it and the feeling of relief that washed over me unbelievable that's the word mate relief that's the word because people don't understand that without like you know Charles Sonnen said it best didn't he without uh, did you see the one where he it's called a beautiful feeling or something. Um, no, I haven't. The, oh yeah, it's fucking beautiful. Him and it was basically a, a, vo- a voice overlay of him and Joe Rogan, right, on a podcast. And it was, um, I think it was the music they were playing was from. Oh God, what's it called? Oh God, damn the film. Not misconcept. Oh shit. And then I'll find it afterwards. Anyway, yeah. and it was showing several, you know, high-profile UFC fights. And they talk about, you know, he's talking about, you know, on game day, how you feel, blah, 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 blah. And it was Rogan. He said, you know, the relief. And Kale Sonnen said to me, he said, it's interesting you use that word because that's exactly what it is. Mm. People don't understand. Like, when that referee dives across you, you stop the fight. That dump. Yeah. I mean, you couldn't, like, the human body is an amazing thing. Because if I think if you sustained that feeling for any more than two seconds, you'd fucking pass out. Yeah, you just can't. It's like that. Overwhelming. It's like a gush, like the like the bottoms just falling out, falling out from your brain. Yeah, and it's just poof, and it's just overwhelming. And you, like you said, it's come to, I don't want to be condescending. Like Kelson had said, I don't want to be condescending unless you've done it. You ain't never gonna understand. No, it's no. fucking. What one of my favorite? Well, no. My favorite photo from my career by far 
was after the the Izidro fight because my parents never used to come and watch me fight by my request. I didn't I didn't need what was it the what was it the kid the the guy said to Tom Cruise in uh, Last Samurai too many mind mind people mind fight mind opponent mind you know what I mean like the idea of having my my parents outside of the cage my mind would even if it was distracted it would have been with them particularly well my dad because I know he wants to climb the fence and fight with me or fight alongside me and my mum because she just doesn't want me in that environment at all so if you're in a bad spot yeah. So the first time my parents actually came to one of my professional fights was the Isidro fight, and I didn't know they were there. It was the uh, it was a Harvey Haddon in Nottingham, and they'd they'd come in. They were standing in the bar, and they were watching through the little windows in the bar into the arena. Mad. And after I think was it third round, I stopped him, ground and pound. He was he was going for an ankle lock, and I just managed to to get him up against the fence and land a few good shots. And uh, as I turned around my dad was elbowing his way through the octagon security and he was in the cage and I didn't even know he was there. I didn't even know he was in the building. That's a nice minute. And I've got, I've got this photo of my, us embracing right after the fight. There's a, a look of relief on my face and you're right, right next to us just kind of looking back at both of us. It's a wicked photo. I'll have to send it over yeah, to you. Yeah, and that sounds awesome, it's, mate. Uh, I think it might be my book actually. It's uh, it, it's always stuck out as one of the best memories. You know what I mean? Because it, it's just it's just relief. That's, it, that's that's what it is. You can't describe it. You can't. Indescribable feeling. That's what it's called. And I think it kept getting taken down from, um, it kept getting taken down from YouTube. Oh, because they were using footage. because they were using the overlay of the. It's a classical piece, and it was used in the film. Not in Inse- might be Inception, Inception. The film, yeah. Right. It's beautiful. Oh, I'll have to have a look. Beautiful. I'm surprised you, yeah, you haven't yeah, saw it, but I've yeah, no. crazy, no. mate. Too many, like you know, so many fights in the old Cage Warriors. Like in the, um, there was obviously Coventry fighting Coventry fighting in Sheffield, you yeah. know, beyond the what did they call it? Enter the the uh, Octagon uh, Center. It was yeah, called the, the Octagon, Octagon Center. Center. Yeah, um, yeah. Cage Warriors Quest days. Cage Warriors Quest, uh, and then obviously in the latter part of Cage Warriors was for your latter part of Cage Warriors was in the Enter the Rough House. Yeah. In Nottingham. They were good shows. Mad days. They what was your last shows. fight in Cage Warriors? Uh it was the Reiner. Yeah, it was Reiner. It was Reiner. Then you fought And then I fought Vichel two weeks and later then you and went. Then I was in the UFC. Yeah. I had a uh I always like to play weird little games with myself going into fights and I remember uh I remember going into one one fight I had it was I was watching the Super Bowl at the time, and I had Troy Palomalu and Larry Fitzgerald written on written on my my wraps because they were on opposing teams. The Cardinals were playing the Steelers, and it was like I, I wasn't sure which team to support, so I was going to write the names on my wraps, my two favorite players, because I mean Larry Fitzgerald was an incredible athlete, very very fast and powerful. Troy Palomalu was a wrecking ball, and I liked both of their qualities. So I, I thought I, I used to do my hand wraps as well. I'd, I'd have red on my on my lead hand and black on my your on own my, yeah yeah so like even when I was in the gym and stuff just doing regular hand wraps but then I used to go down to the ice arena in Nottingham and buy the coloured tape as well yeah so as I was having my hands wrapped for cage wires I'd have one red and one black and I did the same thing for the Isidro fight I was entirely halved my hair my shorts I remember your ankle. shorts it was always yeah. a red and black theme because he went for he went for an ankle lock and my ankle it came off and it always stuck in my mind. You picked it up and you just <laughs> you threw it out the cage. And I was like, that was a part of my outfit. <laughs> it matched my shorts and my Bring hair. Bring it back. Like, yeah. on, stop the fight. <laughs> um, 
but like in the Chad Reiner fight, my dad had put a bit of money on, it was the Grand National around the Grand National time. My dad had put like, as a tradition, he puts like 50p on, I, I don't bet on horse. I don't bet on anything, particularly not anything to do with animals. So I, I, I don't do it anymore. But in that particular moment, my dad had put 50p on a horse and it was called uh, Death or Glory. And I, he won a fiver and he gave the fiver to me before and I had it wrapped into the wrist of my wraps. No way. So I had a five pound note wrapped into my hand that was from... You fucking got that past me. Well done. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was around the, around yeah. the wrist. Yeah, around the wrist. And uh, that was what I knocked him out with. It was the right hand over the top because I defended takedowns for like 10 minutes and then I got him backed up and he was starting to slow down. Came over the top, knocked him out with that right hand, dropped him against the fence and then gave him a lift to the bus station to go back to the airport. <laughs> as you do as you do as you do as you do yeah right I would like to do this again very soon so I think we can stick a pin in this right now and, and we can pick up on the, the Cambodia stories and the, and the other ones that are going to be that are going to be really interesting some memoirs mate just talk to me what, what am I drinking today this water's amazing yeah love hemp from uh, the guys I've just um, I've started working with them only this week uh, contacted me and we spoke about um obviously um the benefits and um of cbd so cbd oils uh, uk in particular the love hemp brand mm. have very kindly um nominated me as a brand ambassador um and i'm on a, a trial period with their products to obviously find out the the full benefits because i remember the first time i actually used it you know, not, I didn't speak to any company or nothing like that. I hadn't spoken to them, and I'd used, I'd obviously been reading about CBD this, CBD that. I thought I'm going to try it. I'm going to try it. And as I was explaining to you off air, so to speak, <laughs> I tried it and I took it at night before sleep, and uh, I genuinely 100. But you know, it's not a plug. I don't. You know, people are going, oh, you do, you're working with them, this, that, and the other. Listen, if you don't believe, I know you think it's a trick, and say, look, try it for yourself. Yeah. I'm I'm a firm believer in uh, it's no consequence that an abundant plant growing on this earth was sent there and grew there to help us. Yeah. You know the key is that, that's why it's there. And I think the um what I actually found was definitely the most significant thing for me was the quality of sleep that I had. Mm-hmm. Um but I didn't take it long enough to th- you know I wanted to find out about aches and pains and this that and the other. But I wanted to now, obviously, working with with Love Hemp, um, I, I'm excited by it, and the guys have very kindly nominated me as a brand ambassador. So, well, this is good. I mean, this is this is like water. This hemp infused water infused with CBD hemp droplets. What a beautiful word droplets is. Crazy, yeah. This is. I mean, this this it tastes delicious and it's really good. So hashtag Hemp Revolution. I like that little fact on the back. In the 1900s, it was illegal not to grow hemp in some U.S. states. You could pay your taxes with it in the US. There's a yeah. book called The Emperor Wears No Clothes that Eddie Bravo gives to every one of his black belts pretty much. And uh, it's got loads of really interesting facts about it. There's a, a company sent me um, sent me some of the droppers, a company called Canazen sent me some of the droppers. And uh, I passed on the strongest one, the gold strength of the Canazen to a friend, my mum's best friend. Uh, uh, her name's Sarah and she's got MS. And she was on, she had like a, a whole cabinet full of painkillers that she was on, really strong stuff to help relax muscles, help her sleep, those kind of things. I gave her this little dropper with this uh, uh, this uh, CBD oil dropper and she's off all of her painkillers. It's amazing. I mean, I, I knew it was good. I've used it in the past. Um, I use like ointments and balms and stuff as well with CBD. And 
but to see someone that's really struggling to get those kind of benefits from it, it's, it's amazing. That's what I'm excited about. And, you know, thanks for giving me the chance to, to drop that in there. I know the guys will be pleased, but yeah, Love Hemp is, is the brand that, that I'm using. And, and the good thing about, you know, they think, oh, of course you're going to be pushing this, but no. And, and they're very firm about it too. You know, Love Hemp are like, look, you're a brand ambassador. You do this for us. You t speak openly and honestly about your products. Yeah. They never make any medicinal claims. They don't make wild and, and crazy. It will cure you this. It will cure you that, you know. Go and try uh, the, the brand for yourself. See what works for you. I think that the benefits are a very personal thing. Yeah. It may help you sleep. You know, they talk about um, anxiety, aches, pains. There's so many things to... You know the benefit of of taking it and experimenting with it is as far and wide. So yeah, yeah, Love Hemp UK is the brand. Yeah, CBD oils UK. Yeah, it's get on stuff. there. It slows my brain down. My brain's already scattered. I have six hundred conversations going on at the same time, and I find it it just helps slow it down and and ease some of the the, the muscle tension that I have as well. It's it's fantastic. Like a relaxant, huh? Yeah, yeah, uh huh? That's how I remember. I mean, mm -hmm. I thought you were laughing. I'll tell this story that when I when I when I first took it. The, the missus actually remarked to me and she says I don't think you've swore at me for a few days <laughs> and I'm like anybody who knows Mark and like you know I, I see swearing as a sign as part and parcel of me and I think it's a sign of honesty it's sincerity you know a, a well placed a well placed cuss or a well placed swear underlines that the emphasis that you're making yeah. but she said to me she went you haven't swore for a week or a few. I was like, no, fucking hell. <laughs> <laughs> I had to go on like a rampage, like a, like a, like a temporary Tourette's. For, for, like for, an exorcism. Yeah, I was like, no, out. fucking hell, you're joking. I've got to make it up. But yeah, thanks for letting me plug that. The guys would be happy too. And um, I'm excited to share my findings and thoughts on social media about it too. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Let's do this again sometime very soon. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks for listening to the Full Reptile Radio. It's been Dan Hardy and Mark Goddard. It's been incredible. This has been absolute gold. We're just over 90 minutes, and this is going out unedited. It's, it's, it's beautiful. Thanks for talking to me, and thank you, everybody, for listening. It can do something no other kind of lizard can do. It can run continuously for a very long time, and that enables it to become an endurance hunter, chasing down its prey. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, subscribe via iTunes.